0: Mark chapter 8, Jesus says to the disciples, in verse 27, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So Jesus goes to the disciples and he first of all asks them, who do people say that I am? And then he he focuses in a little bit closer and he says, who do you say that I am? I want to start a a new series this morning for, I'm not sure how long, um, might be five weeks, might be six weeks but the first message that, that we brought here at the start of lockdown was from Revelation chapter 1. And in Revelation 1, Jesus commands his people to not be afraid. And the reason that they should not be afraid is that they should look at him. He is the one who has conquered death and the grave, he holds the keys, he's the beginning and the end. And the great challenge, the great invitation of Revelation 1 is look at me and do not be afraid. And we want to continue that theme of looking at Jesus because I feel at this time more than any other in in my life, in my ministry, in the ministry of this church, that we need to be drawing people to Jesus and we need to be presenting Jesus to people so that they know who he is. And who is this guy? Who is this Jesus then that, that for those of you that have been tuning in for the last few weeks who maybe haven't you know frequented church an awful lot lately... Um, And you hear me rattling on about this guy, Jesus, a lot in a slightly obsessive manner. Who is he? Uh, He is the subject of more songs, more art, and more books than anyone else. He is the most influential person in history. That cannot be argued with. Jesus is the most influential person to have ever lived. In fact, history is divided by his life. We talk about before Christ, B.C. and Anno Domini after or in the year of our Lord, A.D. History itself is divided by one person and one person only, and it's Jesus Christ. And every single time you look at the date and you look at the year, it is a reminder that history was divided by him. He changed how the world viewed children. Uh, Apparently, both the Greek and the Hebrew words for children derive from words that mean not speaking. In other words, that children should be quiet and not speak, that they did not have value in society until they were a certain age. Jesus changed society's perception of children. He changed society's perception of women and gave women value and dignity that they did not have in the cultures they were living in. From his birth, people were trying to kill him. Jesus did not have 33 happy years, and then things went wrong for the last six months or so, and he got executed. From his birth, a psychotic king called Herod was trying to kill him. The way that he was finally executed was by means of a cross, and that cross is now the most recognizable symbol on earth. Every now and again, the kids take a notion to play uh, games on on their phones where they have to recognize logos of different brands, and they'll see a little bit of the logo, and they have to figure out what the brand is. There is no logo, there is no symbol that is universally recognized across the earth like the cross. Jesus has inspired many, many people to give their entire lives to fight for certain causes. He inspired William Wilberforce to fight for the abolition of the slave trade. He inspired Martin Luther King to fight for civil rights for African Americans. He inspired an archbishop called Desmond Tutu to fight against apartheid in South Africa. He has inspired many people to fight for many causes for humanity. I follow him. And we lead a church and a part of a community of faith of people who follow him who is he? He hasn't always been well represented by his followers. There are times in history and there are times today when the church and when Christians do not faithfully portray to society who Jesus really is. In Mark 8 that we've just read, he asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he asks them, who do you say that I am? And the title that I want to take for this little series is an extension of that, Who Do I Say That I Am? Who Do I Say That I Am? In other words, what does Jesus say about himself? We have an opportunity in this moment to present Jesus. And the simplest way to present Jesus is to go into the Gospels, and particularly into John, not exclusively, but particularly into John, and look and see what does Jesus actually say about himself? Who does he say that he is? He uses a phrase, if you go to John chapter 4, you'll see it there for the, for the first time, I think, in John's Gospel. He uses a phrase that, that comes from the Old Testament. In John chapter 4, verse 26, Jesus has been in conversation with a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman. And in verse 25, she says to Jesus, John four twenty-five, I know that Messiah or Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. That's a really awkward phrase. Even in English, it's really, really awkward. It's even more awkward in the original language. Jesus basically says to the woman, I speaking to you am. I am. He uses this phrase, I am, when he speaks to her. He uses it again in John chapter 6 where in verse 20, the disciples are in a boat, and there is a storm, and Jesus walks on water, and when he, when he sees the disciples, and they are terrified, he says to them, don't be afraid. Now again, my, my Bible says, it is I, don't be afraid. But literally, what Jesus says is, in Greek, it's the words ego me, and what he literally says is, I am, do not be afraid. He does it again in in chapter 8, whenever he's having an argument with some religious guys about Abraham, and towards the end of chapter 8, he says to them, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Again, he uses this slightly awkward phrase that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Before Abraham was born, I am. What does he mean? Why does he say that? Um, If you go back to to Exodus, don't bother going back to it now, but in Exodus chapter 3, Moses has an encounter with God at a burning bush. Everybody knows this story. And Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am and he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So God declares his name to Moses. When Moses says, give me a name, give me something that I can bring to the people, the name that God gives him is this name, I am. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. And it is a word that was so precious and a name that was so precious that many Jews didn't even say it because they did not want to break the third commandment, this word Yahweh, I am. And every time Jesus uses that phrase, so when he walks in the water and he says to the disciples, do not be afraid, I am, he's telling them, don't be afraid because I am God. The presence of God is here. When he talks to the woman at the well and he says, I am, he is declaring to her that she is not just talking to another man at a well, she is encountering God. Whenever he says to the religious guys in John 8, before Abraham was, I am, he's declaring that he predates Abraham, that he existed before Abraham. In fact, he has always existed because he is God in the flesh. And that's why at the end of John 8, the religious guys are so ticked off with him for saying this that they start picking up stones to stone him. I am. These words, when Jesus speaks these words, it carries tremendous weight. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a wise man or a great teacher. He is declaring that he is God in the midst of people. Now, in John 6... Jesus puts uh, uh, something at the end of the I am phrase. He does this several times in John's gospel. Some, see, some people see seven times, some people see eight. Uh, but he, he does this where he declares himself to be something. One of the most famous ones is in John 10. We'll get there. I am the good shepherd. That'll come up sometime in the next few weeks. But in, in this passage today in John 6... I want to read from verse 25 to verse 40, and in the middle of it, we'll see one of the things that Jesus says about himself. Remember, the whole point of the message and the point of this little series is to say to you, invite you to look at Jesus and say, this is what Jesus says about himself. It's not what I say about him. It's not what I read in a book about him. It is not Any other human thoughts about him, this is what Jesus actually declares about himself. Verse 25 of John 6, reading to verse 40. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Because earlier on in John chapter 6, he has fed the 5,000 in the wilderness. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed this seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. That sounds good, doesn't it? But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John is not simply recording a nice miracle at the start of John chapter 6. He is recording something much more that leads Jesus to say, I am the bread of life. Now, I like bread. I like fresh bread. I don't like bread out of the supermarket that that just looks like bread and feels like bread, but really... mm, debatable whether it's bread or not i love fresh bread there's been a lot of bread baked in our house during lockdown we have a bread maker thank you lord it is a wonderful thing we um we've made bread every single day uh, and pretty much everybody's had a go at making bread linda's made it i've made it the kids have made it um there's a lot of bread being made and the smell of fresh bread is a lovely thing when you walk into a house and you can smell freshly baked bread it's a very welcoming smell. But Jesus' declaration here that he is the bread of life means so much more than just a welcoming smell or the satisfying taste of a homemade soda farl. There's much more going on. And, and whenever John records what we just read in, in, from verse 25 onwards, he, he records an explanation that Jesus gives of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, we can very easily go to the feeding of the 5,000 and we can correctly tell you know a nice story of a little boy bringing a little bit of food to a great Jesus who fed a great multitude. And we can stop there um, and, and, and miss what, what Jesus goes on to say when he explains what has actually happened. It's a powerful miracle. It's a beautiful miracle, but it is much more than just Uh, Jesus looking at the crowds and thinking right I'm going to produce some food for food for these people because I can't there's more to it than that in fact in John's gospel John does not record miracles he refers to them as miraculous signs and a sign by definition points to something else there's there's a sign here, not just a miracle. He says round right about verse 26, he says to the crowds that are now coming after him. He's he's crossed the lake, he's walked on the water, and the crowd have found him. And he says to them, You've come here because you got your belly filled, you got some nice bread. In other words, he says, You're here because you're selfish. You're here because You want me to give you what you want. You've got these desires and these appetites and cravings, and you want me to give you more bread. That's why you've come. He actually says to them in in verse 26 that you're looking for me not because you saw the miraculous sign. Now, they did see the miracle. They did eat the bread. Their stomachs were filled. But Jesus says to them, you missed it. You didn't see the sign. There's more going on than what you actually partook of whenever you ate the bread. And he, he the, the key to understanding the whole chapter is actually verse 4. John, before he talks about the feeding of the 5,000, before he talks about walking on water, and before he goes into this discussion of the bread of life... John says in verse 4, the Jewish Passover feast was near. Now, I'm pretty sure I told you last week that what John does in his gospel is he presents Jesus against the background of the feasts of Israel. So you will read in John's gospel about several Passover feasts. You will read about the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll read about the Feast of Dedication. John loves to pitch Jesus against the background of these feasts. And what they did at the feasts was, a bit like ourselves when we have a feast at Easter or Christmas, we look back to what God did in the past and we celebrate it. So at Passover time, what these people were thinking about and and what had been going on in their lives for the past few days and what was coming up at the Passover was remembering what God did during the exodus what did he what did he do during the exodus he he fed the multitude in the wilderness so they got manna every day this manna this bread came from heaven in the wilderness to feed the people and at passover time that's one of the things that god's people then look back to and celebrate whenever he provided bread manna in the wilderness and it is no coincidence at all that in john chapter 6 Jesus provides bread in the wilderness at Passover time. It's not a fluke. It's, it's, it's designed to show him as being the fulfillment of the Passover. Now, according to a guy called Gary Burge, uh, the Jewish people were fascinated by the miracle of the manna at the time of the Exodus. And the way they understood it was they, they pictured in heaven a storehouse or a treasury filled with manna. Big massive barns in heaven filled with this this bread. And they saw <coughs> that that storehouse <coughs> excuse me, had been opened at the time of the Exodus and the Israelites had been fed with bread from heaven. And they looked back and they celebrated that but a Passover time, they also looked forward to the future, and they had this hope and this belief that at some stage in the future, when the Messiah comes, the storehouse of bread in heaven will open up once again, and the bread will come down from heaven. In fact, one Jewish uh, <clears throat> commentary on Exodus 16 says, As the first Redeemer, Moses caused manna to descend so a latter Redeemer will cause manna to descend. So at Passover time, they're looking back to when the bread came from heaven, and they're looking forward to a promise and a hope that bread will come from heaven again. Another thing that happened at Passover time was that God parted the Red Sea. So there's absolutely no coincidence that in John 6, you're seeing Jesus... Showing his complete power and control over a chaotic sea by getting up and walking on it. All right? These things are not just haphazard chucked together. It's all carefully crafted. Feeding the multitude in the wilderness, power over the waters. This is Passover stuff. This is Exodus stuff. And what Jesus is doing here, and what John is doing, is he's telling you that Jesus is about the business of new exodus. Last week we talked about new creation, how Jesus' death and resurrection in particular were put against the background of Genesis to let us see that Jesus is doing a work of new creation. Throughout John and throughout all the Gospels, there's also the background of exodus, and things that happened to Israel during the exodus, because Jesus is carrying out a new exodus. He's doing a new creation. He's also doing a new exodus. <clears throat> and he says to them in verse 26, you're missing it. You thought the miracle was pretty nifty. You saw the bread being multiplied. You were satisfied with nice, fresh bread in your bellies. And you went away happy and you've come back for more. But you've missed the sign. And the sign is that I'm doing the work of new Exodus. Just a little tip. Again, if you want to understand Jesus in the Gospels, you should read Genesis 1-3 to at least and the first half of Exodus. Genesis 1-3 to talks about creation and it's all over the place in the Gospels. Jesus is doing new creation. Exodus, the first half. All over the Gospels, Jesus is doing a new Exodus work and you will see similar things taking place. So after Jesus has said to them that you missed the sign, he says in verse 27, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And in verse 28, as soon as religious people hear the word work, they're onto it in a moment. And they say to him, what must we do? to do the works that God requires. The human race is infected with pride. One of the things that is absolutely fundamental to the character of Satan is pride. He rebelled against God due to pride. And the human race is filled with pride. And we want to earn favor with God. There's something in all of us that wants to feel we deserve God's mercy, that we do something that pleases Him. And it's a poisonous thing. It's a religious mindset. That is religion at its very worst. The notion that I can do something that earns the grace of God, that earns the forgiveness of God. I am not worthy of it, I cannot earn it, I do not deserve it, it is a gift. But that religious mindset of these people that were talking to Jesus is, what must we do? What are the works that we need to do to be right with God? What are the rules that we need to keep? A religious mindset is a stubborn, stubborn mindset. It is hard to shift It's hard to break. Many of us are completely brainwashed by a religious mindset that holds us back from truly following Jesus. This nation is steeped in it, and it needs to break. Jesus says in verse 29 that it's not about works. He says, the work of God is this. If you want work, if you want something to do, do this. Belief says the work of God is to believe in him who God has sent. And believe in John is not just about some sort of intellectual uh, agreement with something. In other words, I hear what Jesus says, and I believe that it's true. It's more than that. It is belief that involves then putting your trust in him. That, That what you believe then affects Everything that you do, that's what Jesus says to these guys, you have to do. It's not about works, it's not about rules, it's not about legalism and religion. You must place your trust in me and allow that to affect how you live your life. Now they then do something really bizarre in verse 30. And if you've read the first half of the chapter, you'll see how bizarre it is. They asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? You're like, what? He has just fed 5,000 men plus women and children in the wilderness with five small loaves and two small fish provided by one small boy. Now that's an incredible sign. He has then somehow got across a lake without a boat, They don't know that he walked on water, but they know that he didn't get into the boat, yet he got to the other side of the lake. And then they ask him a few verses later, can you do a miraculous sign for us? You would think that what he had done was enough, but it's not enough. And the reason it's not enough for them is Jesus, in their opinion, has simply multiplied bread that was already there. And they compare Jesus to Moses, In verse 31, they're saying, Moses gave us bread from heaven. So Jesus, you're not as good as Moses. You've done something pretty good here in multiplying the bread. We like it, but Moses did not take earthly bread and multiply it. Moses caused bread to come from heaven. And we need to see something like that. We need to see the bread coming down from heaven if we're going to follow you and believe in you. And Jesus, instead of giving them another sign, he gives them a sermon, and he explains what he did in the wilderness in the first 15 verses of John chapter 6. Now John tells us later on in the chapter that this happens in the synagogue, and it's Passover time. And like Christmas for us, We read the same scriptures every year at Christmas and frequently teach and preach in church on the same scriptures every year. We do it at Easter as well. We maybe do it on the day of Pentecost as well. In the Jewish world, at Passover time, there were a bunch of readings that were read and preached and taught in the synagogue at Passover time. And one of them was Psalm 78 that looks back to the Exodus, and it's what they quote at the end of verse 31. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And basically what Jesus does is in the synagogue, he gives them a sermon and he explains to them what that verse means and how he fulfills it. He says in verse 32, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. All Moses did was distribute it. All Moses did was tell them to go out and gather it. Moses did not actually give them the bread. Jesus says, it was my Father who gives you the bread. Right? And just even notice that. He doesn't say, my Father gave the bread. He says, my Father gives. present tense, God is giving something. My Father gives you the bread, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now they like what they hear. And they, they, in verse 34, they're egging him on. Um, in the synagogue, there would have been a lot of discussion and a lot of debate, a lot of interaction between the speaker and the people he was speaking to. And they interrupt him and say, Jesus, sir, this, this sounds good. From now on, give us this bread. They've heard about true bread coming down from heaven. And they're like, yeah, sounds good. Let's have that. It's interesting, just as an aside, the the way the crowd changes their tune during the sermon. We're not going through the whole rest of chapter 6, by the way. But as, as the sermon goes on, in verse 34, they're really happy and they say, give us this bread. In verse 41, they begin to grumble. They don't like the fact that Jesus says that he is the bread. In verse 52, they begin to argue with one another about what he's saying. In verse 60, they say that his teaching is hard to accept. And in verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Interesting trend as Jesus teaches and the changing attitude of the crowd towards him. But it's after this, They've said, give us this bread in verse 34, and that has set Jesus up perfectly to make his declaration. Who do I say that I am? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. We are living in a very hungry and a very thirsty world where people run after and yearn after many, many things in order to try to satisfy a hunger that is within them and a thirst that is within them. Yearning for something. And the 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 genius of the enemy, the genius of what he provides is there is so much in the world that promises to satisfy hunger and to quench thirst. So many things that we fill our lives with and that we run after. But Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, I have followed Jesus for 21 years. I have never in that 21 years felt a hunger that is not satisfied by him, or a thirst that is not quenched by him. There are times that I have hungered for more of him, and thirsted for more of him, and yearned after him, but I have never found myself saying, Jesus, you don't satisfy. You don't quench thirst. He says, "I am the bread of life." In fact, he says it three times. He says it again in verse forty-eight, and again in verse fifty-one. He refers to this living bread. So let's just take a few minutes as we as we draw towards a close to to look at this. I am the bread of life, and see if we can figure out what Jesus actually means, what he wants us to see about him. Why bread? We cannot live without bread. Um, now, in different cultures, you know, it might not be bread. It might be rice. It might be pasta. It might be spuds. But we have these staple things that we eat that we can't live without. And in the culture that Jesus lived in, that was bread. He did not say, I am the cake of life, according to Earl Palmer. He did not even say, I am the cheese of life, which has been an interesting concept. He is not a luxury. He is absolutely essential for life to flourish. And get that. There are many, many things that we like to eat that are not essential. And then there are essentials. And Jesus is saying to them, it's not just any bread. Apparently, this is literally the the barley bread, the bread that the poor people would have eaten. So it was the absolute basic necessity for life and for nourishment. It was essential. He is saying to people, I am more necessary than your next meal. Now, we need to live like that, church, in our pursuit of Christ. And also, for those who don't follow him, I invite you to ponder the fact that he says I am more important to your life than your next meal. I am the bread that you must eat to live. I'm not, you know, he's not the cake of life. Cake is not essential. Now, some of you disagree with that, but think about it. Cake is not essential for life. It is a treat, it is a luxury. Jesus says, I'm the bread. We have so much stuff in our lives that is not essential. One of the good things about lockdown is we're, we're starting to learn a little bit about the difference between what we need and what we want. Um, I, I've been saying to the kids, we don't need lollies, okay? You want lollies, but we don't need lollies. We need milk, and we need eggs, and we need fruit, and we need vegetables, and we need stuff to make bread. We need those things. So about once every five or six days, I go to Robert's wonderful, glorious shop in Tandragee, and I get the things that we need. And I said to my beloved children, about once every three weeks, I will go to a supermarket and I will get a few things there that you want, as well as the things that we need. We're learning the difference between what we need and what we want. And Jesus does not say, I'm a luxury, I'm an optional extra, I'm something that you can have with your coffee after dinner as you relax. He says, I am the main course. I am the bread of life. He is telling humanity, and he's telling you, and he's telling me, you need me. Now, on the lips of 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 a human being, that would sound arrogant. But on the lips of Jesus, the author of life itself, through whom everything was made and for whom everything is made, he sustains all things by his powerful word. He says, you need me if you're going to live. So that's why he uses the term bread. And why does he talk about life? Why, you know, He could have just said, I'm the bread, but instead he says, I am the bread of life. Um, Jesus keeps repeating life. Just listen to verses 47 to 51. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. In other words, they stopped living. Um, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. Keep living. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He just mentions life and living over and over and over again, because great teachers repeat everything. And in the wilderness it was not just a matter back in that wilderness in the exodus where you had probably at the start over half a million people in the wilderness with moses and they've just come through the red sea and they have no food and god provides manna for them he's not providing a luxury this is a matter of life and death they are not just sitting around in the desert thinking, you know, i oh, are a bit bored. It would be nice to have something tasty that's a bit different. He, he, He basically, they are going to die if they don't get this food. And that's how important this is. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am what you need. And it is a matter of life and death. I did not come to improve your life. <laughs> I came to give you life. I came to give you life. Jesus is not just, it's not that he just comes to satisfy our longings. That was the mistake the crowd made after he fed the multitude in the wilderness. They thought to themselves, "Ah, this guy produces bread by the bucket load. We'll follow him and we'll get bread and our longings and our appetites and cravings will be satisfied. He does not just come to satisfy our longings. He comes to give us life. Because we're dead without him. Right? That's a strong word, but that's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, We were dead in our sins, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We were dead. And you might respond and say, "Well, I'm not dead. Look at me. I'm breathing, and my heart is beating, and I can move around, and I am obviously alive." But I want you to know that if you're outside of Christ, the Word of God says you are spiritually dead in sin. Maybe come, you may come back and say, "Well, I'm not a bad spot. I've never killed anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've never, I've never, you know, caused any huge crime or huge hurt." doesn't matter jesus says you're dead in your sins there is a part of you you are a spiritual being you have a spirit and you have the potential to receive the life of god's holy spirit and to become fully alive restored back into the image of god the way he designed you to live in fellowship with him and unless that has happened the bible says you're dead You're dead in your sins. You need to receive the life that he offers. This is a matter of life and death. What does Jesus say about himself? Who do I say that I am? I am the bread of life. I am a matter of life and death. You don't just push me off to one side as a small thing that can be addressed at some later stage in life. He says, this is a matter of life and death. And some of you are hearing the voice of God calling you. Some of you know what I mean when when I say that you have a spirit, you have a potential to have the life of God within you, and you are aware of his voice in these days and his call towards you to, to, to respond and to awaken and to have your spirit come alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I would challenge you, respond clearly and respond decisively. Don't just, don't flirt with Jesus. Don't just, you know, come and dip in every now and again. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Respond to his call to live. I am the bread of life. And Jesus said in verse 35, He who comes to me, will never go hungry, and who believes in me will never be thirsty. The Bible talks about daily bread. Um, that, that is in the prayer that Jesus taught us to preach. It's in Proverbs. It's in Exodus itself, where the manna came every day. And you know yourself. You, did, you didn't just eat one loaf of bread 10 years ago, which kept you going for 10 years. You have to eat every day. I am the bread of life, the daily bread. And when when Jesus says, he who comes to me, the tense there is he who keeps coming. And he who believes in me, it's he who keeps believing. It's not just that at some stage in the past, I came to Jesus and I have received life. I keep coming. Give us this day our daily bread is more than just a request for God to provide for our physical needs. It is a spiritual life that comes from a daily relationship with Jesus, which is what we're invited into. And we need to cultivate that daily habit. Do it now because now you have more time in your hands than you maybe have had for years and maybe will have for years. Do it now. Cultivate that daily habit. Visualize yourself coming to a table, if that if that helps you. Go and, and jump up into an armchair and visualize a table in front of you with bread on it and your Bible with you. And you're coming to Jesus for daily nourishment and strength. I am the bread of life. Bread is essential. This is a matter of life and death, and it is something that we need daily, not just at one stage in the past. Again, that is a misunderstanding that can be easily picked up that because you knelt by by your bedside at some stage 20 years ago and asked Jesus to forgive your sins, which is a good thing, but you haven't daily fed yourself on the bread of life from then to now, I'm afraid it doesn't mean an awful lot don't get lulled into a false sense of security. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He didn't say, I'm the injection of life. It's not a shot that you got at one time that somehow gives you a vaccination or immunity or whatever you need. It's not a one-time thing. It's a daily occurrence of walking with God. And don't misunderstand that. If, If for some reason you didn't take time to pray yesterday, don't be Come on down with waves of guilt and condemnation. That's not the point. The point is that we have a lifestyle and a habit of coming to the one who says, I am what you need and I will give you life. Daily bread, who do you say that I am? Who do I say that I am? Not who does David say that I am or who does somebody else say that I am? Who do I say that I am? I am the bread of life. It is not just a case of, I will satisfy you and fulfill your desires and give you everything that you want. It's so much more. It's set against the backdrop of the Passover. It's set as the explanation of this miraculous feeding of a multitude in the wilderness. And we need to think bigger. Jesus is not just saying, I will provide your physical needs. What he's saying is, I'm doing what Moses did. Moses led the people in an exodus. There were signs and powerful things that God did through Moses. You have for centuries looked forward to another one like Moses coming and leading a new exodus. And he says, it's me. I am leading a new exodus. I am doing the stuff that Moses did right under your nose. You have come against me with the allegation that I have just multiplied bread from earth, and I didn't bring bread from heaven. And he says, I am the bread from heaven. It's not that I'm standing and calling it down. He says, I am the bread. Eat me. Feed on me and receive life from me. He is doing the work of a new exodus. We are enslaved to sin until Jesus sets us free. He comes and he releases us from the oppression of a life of slavery to sin. And he says a lovely thing. I think I mentioned it last week, but also in chapter 6. He says in verse 36, 37, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me i will never drive away or i will never cast out another passage that was read at passover time and again we've mentioned it before is genesis 2 and 3 and genesis 2 and 3 talks about a tree in a garden that they were not to eat from and they were told if you eat from that tree you will die eat that and you'll die. Satan comes along, and he tricks them, and he says, if you eat that, you won't die. You'll be all right. Don't be silly. Eat away. And it's the same today. Satan tricks people. He pulls the wool over their eyes. There are things that God says will bring death, and Satan comes along and says, that's not going to bring death to you. You'll be okay. Eat away. Take the things that God told you not to take. It'll be all right. It's okay to have a heart full of hatred and unforgiveness. It'll be all right. You won't die. It's okay to be selfish and greedy and not care about anyone but yourself. You won't die. That's what Satan says. It's the same lie the whole the whole time. God said, you eat that stuff, you're going to die. Satan says, eat away. And Jesus comes and offers the living bread. And he says in verse 40, no, sorry, verse 50, about this bread that comes down from heaven. And look at the words he uses, which a man may eat and not die. There was a tree in the garden called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eat from that, and you'll die. Jesus comes and he brings this bread of life, and he says, Eat this, and you will not die. And he says in, in verse 37, Come to me and I will not cast you away. Adam and Eve ate the wrong food and died. They were cast away from the garden. And Jesus says, come and eat this bread of life and I will not cast you away and you will not die. You will receive eternal life. Your spirit will come alive. Effectively, he says, I'm the one who reverses what Satan did in the fall when he led humanity astray when he introduced sin and death, oppressed people then in this slavery of sin, he says, I am leading a new exodus out of that slavery. I'm leading you into a life of daily nourishment from me so that you may have life and make it through the wilderness to the promised land. I'm done. Um, Who do I say that I am? I am the bread of life. Essential and a matter of life and death, and a daily requirement. Let me just pray as we finish. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he does not merely give us bread, but that he is the true and living bread come down from heaven. Father, I pray for everyone who has listened and who will listen, and I ask that you will open our hearts and that we will receive the life that you offer. I pray for a sense of gravity and seriousness, Lord, a sense that this is a life and death matter, that you are essential, Jesus. You're not an add-on, you're not an upgrade, you're not a treat or a luxury, but you are essential for life. And I ask that your Spirit would move in the hearts of people today. Encourage your church And reveal yourself more and more to us and to those who don't yet follow you, Lord. May they open their hearts. May they respond to your invitation and to your offer of grace and of life. Amen. That's us. Thanks for listening. Um, I'll see you next week. I'll see some of you on Zoom this afternoon. God bless you. Thanks for your encouragement. Have a great day.